Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spurs in full cry here. Welcome, listeners, to The Extra Inch. My name is Windy, and I'm joined by my psychic and best friend, Bardi. Hello, Bardi. Good evening, Windy. And our tactics guy and my eSports champion, Nathan E. Clark. Hello, Nathan. <laughs> Hello, mate. How are you coping, boys? How are you coping with life? It's um, It's been weird. Work has been really busy. I, I work in internal comms, so um, it's been really busy for us. But getting on, getting by, Windy, getting by. A bit nervous about... A possible lockdown and what that means about getting outside and running around and um, yeah but okay how about you Nathan yeah I uh, so I work from home as it is and I sort of live in the middle of nowhere so I'm often sort of trapped indoors for a day or two at a time as it is so I'm kind of used to things but then like I'm not getting that like that break away every few days <laughs> you know in the evening so it's, it's starting to wear a little bit but you know I'm, I'm coping you yeah I'm doing okay at the moment uh first day today first working day that I didn't go to work last week I kind of had to go to work which was really frustrating to me because I felt like I was massively a part of the problem mm. um whereas today I work from home I felt more on more ethically sure of footing uh and it was fine I, I had like 10 Skype calls today so I felt like I was I've not been off Skype all day so just what I want to do this evening is Skype <laughs> you two but um yeah I mean it's amazing how quickly you can transition to working remotely um I usually have two screens at work and I'm having to make do with with one at home but other than that it's really not that much of a an issue um in my job which is quite interesting there are thousands of of disabled people around the world who are applying for jobs over the last several years and being told that they can't do them because they can't work from home yeah. and lo and behold they could have done all along and the, we have those capabilities don't we it is very enlightening in that respect i think that the genie's out of the bottle now it can't yep. go back to how it was before and i think that's a good thing uh buddy how are you keeping yourself occupied without football to be honest with you i've I find moments where I miss it, but on the whole, Spurs have been so bad that I've, yeah. I'm actually quite, I'm <laughs> yep. quite, enjoy, quite enjoying this. It's um, I'm quite enjoying the freedom away from it, thinking about other things. And to be honest with you, I spend most of my day just because just my wife is working from home as well, just trying to find a rhythm of working without annoying her. And um, yeah, being able to share the monitor like you as well. I need two monitors. She needs two monitors. So um, I've had to bite the bullet in the end. I just went out and bought another one. But um, 
Yeah, just just trying not to annoy her too much is is kind of how I'm passing my day. And how about you, Nathan? Are you missing football? <laughs> so I'm still like working in football, so I'm still watching a fair amount of football, just not live. And like, yeah, pretty much, I was getting to the point where the only live football I was watching anyway was Tottenham, who I was watching out of sort of a sense of duty and sort mm. of like a continuation of Twitter, so not particularly for joy anyway. So it's it's not been a, a massive. I mean, I will definitely start to miss it down the line. I'll, yeah. I will miss the sort of the. Routines. Obviously, I'm I'm playing FIFA instead of watching Spurs instead. So that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah. No, I I I clicked on your link to watch a bit of the game or what I thought was going to be a bit of the first match you did, thinking this is really frivolous and stupid. What am I doing? And ended up like basically watching the whole thing <laughs> and hating myself for it. <laughs> you are welcome. <laughs> I just want to give a little shout out to Joe who emailed me some feedback for a bonus episode that I did with Chris Thatcher, uh, The Puppeteer. I called the episode The Puppet Master. Uh, mm-hmm. Joe sent the sweetest feedback and it was really, really appreciated. So I wanted to give him a mention. Um, and I really enjoyed my chat with Chris as I think came across. I was very enthusiastic because I love The Dark Crystal. Um, lots of people would have like listened to the first five minutes and probably switched off because it wasn't their thing. But uh, if you did that, go back and listen because it was lovely to talk to Chris about that, but also about his love for Spurs, which I thought really came through. Um, great bloke, and I thought it was a great chat as well. If I don't say so myself. Um, so yeah, he was, he was. Sorry, he wasn't. Yeah, he was an interesting chap, and I totally Dark Crystal kind of slipped my mind, and like my. And then when he started talking about it, I just had in my head because I was listening to it as I was running the 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 puppets with the big noses, and I heard him talking about it. Then I went home and checked it, and I realised that was the show that used to scare. That was the film that used to scare the living crap out of me when I was young. And um, yeah, I'm going to give that a watch and go and try the Netflix doc- uh, the Netflix series as well. Nice one, do. It's very good. It's uh, very, I mean, even if you don't like the storyline, you just watch it and appreciate the, the art of the whole thing because it is incredibly mm. put together. It's really impressive. Uh, what we're going to do here, we've put out a call for questions and Nathan's very kindly sort of put them into some themes. So we'll start off by talking about the potential appointment of a director of football because lots of different people ask about this. Uh, so if I start with Bill Fogg, Three, who said, not a specific question, but I'd like to hear everyone's thoughts on the director of football coming in and how that makes them feel about Mourinho and the club next season and beyond. So Nathan, let's start with you. Um, how do you feel more generally about the idea or the prospect of a director of football coming in at Spurs once again? Yeah, I, th- I think that it's overdue. I think that it's not a model that we should have abandoned, just perhaps the, the specifics of of what what we tried before and who we tried before and, and the managers and so on. Um, yeah, so I was listening to, um, oh, it might have been Kamoli on um, on the Athletics podcast special thing with him, where they talked about the fact that the that the idea of a director of football back back uh, when he was at Spurs was sort of like this weird modern continental thing not that long ago and now it's like it's weird if you don't have a director of football it's, it's old-fashioned if you're still operating with that one and I, and I think that that is that is true for us um sort of Daniel Levy has obviously been operating as our director of football as our chairman um and I think that he is is recognizing that for all of the good he has done in that role and he has done a lot of good and obviously brought us quite some way um he is not a football expert that's not his strongest skill set you know he obviously has generic business negotiating skills and he will still be able to carry on with those abilities but he's he's not a director of football and we should bring a specialist in who's who's um demonstrated elite level ability in that role indeed i mean you know how annoying it is at work when you're 
boss kind of pokes his nose into stuff that really is well below mm. his pay grade and, mm. and should be left to the people entrusted to do that job. Um, with that in mind, Bardi, how do you feel about this? I mean, we've had mixed successes with um, directors of football. I think it, I think it's needed. But if you kind of look back through the history of them at Spurs, from um, David Pleat, Arneson, um, Kamoli, and um, I, don't, I don't actually know if Kamoli had that official title, but someone there and director. Perhaps, yeah. But I think he was kind of tasked, perhaps, with the same the same mm. responsibilities. We've had mixed successes, but that's kind of the way it is with a lot of transfers. They they do work and they don't work. Um, I think Daniel Baldini, he's probably upset us and probably kind of tainted the idea of a director of football for most football fans, especially Spurs fans, with uh, the history of the Magnificent Seven. But yeah, I think it's needed somebody to identify players, do the transfers, remove Levy from it, and then perhaps just report into Levy, speak to the manager, and then just give Mourinho the players he needs, take that responsibility off him. I think there was definitely a, a drop-off in Pochettino once he decided he wanted to be everything. and maybe that had a knock-on impact on on his attitude and the way he was unable to see his players and his team anymore and he he seemed a little bit lost towards the end but you just made some great points but i i can't help but focus on the fact that you said daniel baldini yeah to me that that sounds like something that people would nickname daniel levy because he's bald (laughs) (laughs) i just can't stop thinking about it Franco Baldini. <laughs> Franco, oh, of course. Oh, sorry. That really tickled Fine. me. Um, <laughs> this pod title. Daniel Baldini. Um, yeah, no, I, I fully agree with everything you just said there. So talking about sort of specific directors of football, we had a question from Ross Wagstaff, uh, who said, do we have any insights on Lewis Campos or Florian Maurice and, and any particular players they may recommend to Levy from their current teams or the French League? So I guess that's the first thing to say. They're both in... Uh, Ligue 1 at the moment so uh, Campos is at Lille and Maurice is at Lyon um, both have some kind of headline good players. Leo have the Nigerian forward that we've recently been linked with, Victor Osimhen. I think it's Osimhen, is how you pronounce it. And also uh, Bibakari Samare, who's the French defensive midfielder. And Leon have plenty of good players. So Memphis Depay is one we've been linked with many times. They've got Moussa Dembele up front. Uh, they've got, is it Ayoa, Nathan? Yeah, Hossamoa. Oa. Uh, who you like very much <laughs> yeah man yeah are there any other do, i mean do you think we should be targeting these players could we get these players or do you think there are any other players that we should be looking at yeah something i, I noticed a lot over the summer um when i was sort of um hyping up and dombele prior to us signing him uh <laughs> is is there was a lot of pushback on the idea of signing players from league on there seems to mm. be a sort of a negative perception and i find that like really baffling i've i've long thought and i continue to really think of 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 the French league is a really good place for sourcing Premier League talent. I think like Eden Hazard uh, and Golo Kante, like um, I, 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 is really quite physical and fast paced, and I and I think that really helps with the crossover between the two leagues. So I, I, it just arrives to me that there's this perception that it's a bad league to sign from, and I, I, I couldn't disagree more. Do you think people are scared because of Clinton and G and you know George Kevin? And but Kudu? those those were bad signings in their own independent mm. way. I, uh, in G, I think actually there 
there was some more upside that we could potentially have uh, have explored there, uh, at least sort of purely as a footballer. But Nkudu was always a bad signing. Was a bad signing at the time. Was obvious to everyone. <laughs> was completely baffling. And that's that. You know, he didn't perform well in Ligue 1. That doesn't make Ligue 1 a bad league to sign players from. That makes him a bad signing. Um, Benji yeah. Stambouli. Well, you know, he was all right. <laughs> but the, you know what I mean, though. This this scares people, doesn't so. it? When, they, when they've seen the caliber of player we've signed previously, um, people get put off. And I think that's I think that's understandable. But as you say, that's they're, true they're of just any bad league. players. Yeah, yeah. You can you can find a bad a bad signing from every league that we signed from for sure. That's Correct. that's the nature of the risk of football and, and all of that. <laughs> How about you, Bardi? Any players in the French league that you uh, you like or think we could get? Um, no, I didn't realise. I just have to compile a dossier on the French league. But <laughs> I do think we as we as Spurs fans, we do get very superstitious. And if a couple of transfers haven't worked from one country, mm. we do get worried. But we, you know, we do seem to have an issue with Brazilian players. Um, so that's, that's always as soon as we sign a Brazilian player, everybody gets a bit a bit nervous. But I think I think you can't say a player from a certain country doesn't work. I just think you've got to look at the scouting and look at the players who were bought. So just because we've bought badly from the French league doesn't mean there's bad players. As Nathan said, Kante, there's been plenty of examples like that who are who are successful. But then you could always look at Nicolas Pepe, who's awful. He came from the French league. I just had to get that in there because Wendy's a huge fan of Pepe. <laughs> oh, Bardi, you're always taking shots, aren't you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, I mean, my, my thoughts on the director of football conundrum are that it's an essential part of the puzzle and I say that with a couple of things in mind first I think that the kind of approach we've taken to transfers over the last few years has been pretty bad I mean, we've signed some good players sure but I think it's been uh I kind of want to almost say more luck than judgment which feels harsh but I think is probably correct mm-hmm. and it feels like we've kind of forced ourselves into a position where we had to spend a lot of money to get the right players in because we haven't been canny with our with our searches and trawls of the transfer market we haven't used data well we haven't built up connections we haven't been loaning players successfully so all these little things add up to me to be an issue with the transfer policy and if a director of football coming in can help resolve some of those issues then great that will be very helpful uh so we know that the the uh people who work on transfers have been the head coach so Pochettino was a big part of the transfer committee Daniel Levy Steve Hitchin who's the chief scout I believe and John McDermott who it's been announced is is leaving Spurs who's the head of the academy um so you know in in theory you've got all the right components there in the room and it's still not working so why not try something else is my uh is my primary thought on that i think Wendy, also... we had a question about mcdermott that i forgot to include um can we just get your thoughts on on mcdermott leaving yeah, sure. So I interviewed McDermott about 10 years ago, and he's a very interesting man. He's a very imposing, slightly terrifying man. <laughs> uh, typical, like, did you ever have like a really aggressive PE teacher at school? Yeah, I know who you mean. Yeah, he, that's that's who he reminded me of massively. Gotcha. Um, like very loud, booming voice. Uh, sort of a threatening aura, of, threatening aura, an aura of toxic masculinity about him. Yes, yeah. Um, I I heard mixed things about McDermott. So like when you meet okay. him and when you hear him speak, he is incredibly impressive, and there's no denying that 
Certainly when he came in at Spurs, he added structure to our academy and he brought through some fantastic players, including Harry Kane, the probably the best youth player we've ever brought through, arguably. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you kind of applaud him for that. Uh, but I think from what I've heard, there have been some issues in the past. And of course, individual players will always say there's been issues when things haven't gone right for them. But, you know, last year he was aligned with Pochettino and stopping players going out on loan, which has ended up with us losing players permanently because they just want to get out of the club. Um, I don't think he found solutions to that problem. And I think that was partly his job to do so. I also think that there's an issue with the sort of type of player we're developing. Um, okay. And by that, I mean, we bring through lots of sort of functional midfield players and centre-backs. Uh, we don't bring through many creative players. And I think that might be something to do with the philosophy that runs throughout the academy. So whilst um, for the nostalgia reasons, I'm sorry to see McDermott go. And I, I obviously wish him all the very best with uh, the FA. I hope he does a fantastic job and has a long and successful career there. Um, I think maybe it was time to freshen things up and get a fresh approach in the academy at Spurs. And I look forward to seeing what we decide to do. The problem is that we've had a drain of all our talent. So we've lost Justin Cochran, Chris Ramsey, Alex Inglethorpe, um, who else? Gosh, Scott Parker. So, you know, there, there's been people at the club who have been very, very highly rated for one thing or another and have moved on elsewhere, taken their skill sets elsewhere. So we've been constantly reappointing, reappointing. So we've got quite a sort of junior academy setup now. We need someone a bit more senior with a bit more experience and uh, a bit more know-how, I think. Um, so yeah, yeah, in- interested to see how Spurs replace McDermott and handle that transition with the academy. It'll be fascinating. Uh, Nathan, we need to talk about your video. We spoke about it very, very briefly in the last time we were all together. Um, but do you want to just talk us through what you did about Mourinho? Okay. Um, so I've been operating on this idea that Mourinho's tactical ideas are outdated. So I've sort of laid that sort of idea um, pretty openly several times. And I wanted to sort of critique my own place. Obviously, I've had I've had pushback on that, which is fair enough. But I, I wanted to give that pushback the the strongest possible argument, so I could then analyze that. So you know, not to, to taking taking your opposition's strongest possible claim and 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 working backwards from there. And so the strongest possible claim that that Mourinho is still an elite current brilliant managers that he won the Premier League not that long ago so I went through Chelsea's 14-15 season and and looked at how they played looked at how modern it was how repeatable that would be till now so how the league has changed in that time and how much it hasn't changed in that time Um, and then sort of a little bit of a look at those same patterns with the current Spurs side and, and how that is and isn't working out for him. And what were your key findings from all his work? Um, I guess sort of a compromise, um, which I guess is to be expected in that there's, there's definitely, there was definitely some modernization, of course, because it had to be to, to win the league as recently as 2015. But the league has changed a, a, a moderate amount, enough that I think... So I look, I I put forward the idea like how would a 2015 Chelsea perform in the 2020 Premier League, and I don't think that they would win. That's kind of obvious because of the strength of of Man City and Liverpool this year. But I I, th- I think that they they would have some tactical difficulties with the the technical level of of the majority of Premier League sort of defenders on the ball, and also the the growing ability of opposition sides to press. Uh, what surprised me w- was was Chelsea. His own pressing, not from like a um, 
sort of to the, the medium high block that they use, which is sort of what I'm referring to when I talk about technical defenders and opposition sides. But there, once Chelsea um, get the ball into the final third and they they maintain the pressure, they're good at winning the ball back. With you know, Fabregas uh, was surprisingly strong in his ability to sort of counter press in the final third, and obviously Matic is very good at sweeping up in that sense. Um, but yeah, the the way that they pressed from the front while they were on top was was really impressive to me, mm. and I think that that for me was one of the most important facets of Pochettino's Tottenham. So if Mourinho could recreate that ability at Spurs, that would do us a, a hell of a lot of good. So you were looking at this from from the perspective of Jose Mourinho. Can he evolve? Can he try something new? Yeah. Did you, in amongst all this research, did you spot any kind of stylistic similarities with Mourinho's Tottenham and Mourinho's Chelsea? Definitely, definitely. I, so we're talking again about the, the high-medium block, and this is... Um, so the opposition have a goal kick, they pass out to the defenders, the defenders pass between themselves and they begin to work the ball through midfield, right? How do you set up in that situation? And what we saw from that Chelsea side and what we are seeing again now from Tottenham is a is a four four two defensive shape where the two forwards push up pretty high and begin to sort of interact with the defenders um, as they are receiving the ball, or maybe if one of them takes a step forward, that kind of thing. That's something that mm. we're seeing at both clubs. And that that works really well for Chelsea because they had a front line of Costa and Oscar, two really brilliant presses of the ball, absolute workhorses, and they sort of gave centre-backs a scare. Centre-backs would rush into the full-back, and that's where Chelsea could pin their full-back in and, 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 and win the ball there. And I think if you look at Spurs pressing against Norwich, if you look at our pressing against Aston Villa in recent weeks, you'll see us try to do a similar thing and the opposition simply, you know, drop in a central midfielder, make a nice little triangle with a centre-back, a full-back and a central yeah. midfielder and just work the ball around us and then suddenly we're open. And I think that that, it's not like a dramatic change. It's not like uh, teams were never passing at the back in 2015. It's not like all teams are Barcelona in 2020 but there's been enough of a shift that the teams that a high medium block is really hard to execute I also think the quality of teams in the Premier League is just better now as well um, probably due to the there's, financial situation there's more of uh, an imbalance between like the current top two and the rest of the league than there was then I think um, but like football as a whole has, has or at least the Premier League as a whole ha- has developed just in, in, in a broad te- technical aspect I yeah. Think, yeah 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 I think definitely the the level of um, ability throughout the league has improved the quality of managers has improved and of course the the TV money allows teams like um Wolves, uh, even like throwing a name out there, Bournemouth, they have more spending power than an equivalent team uh, in the Spanish league or the Italian league. So it just means there's a better, there's a the the pool of players now open to Premier League teams is massive. So I think that's had a, a massive impact on um, on the level of quality. And correct me if I'm um, wrong here, Nathan, because I'm hugely paraphrasing. But one one of your findings was that Mourinho's Chelsea really tried very, very, very hard to get the first goal. And I've noticed that Mourinho's Tottenham really tries to get the first goal. The problem is that we often don't. Whereas Mourinho's Chelsea's team often did, and then they were able to manage the game from that point. Do you think that's one of the issues? So that's sort of uh, like a fundamental testament of Mourinho is that the first goal is is huge and that he doesn't take... Um, 
he doesn't take risks um, when the game state is neutral. He's always been about manipulating the game state, and he sort of like admitted the negative as much recently when he said, uh, "When so once we want a goal down against yeah. Chelsea, he said, well, once an opposition team has a goal against us, we're lost because we can't attack and we can't defend.'" <laughs> Which is, you know, a, a huge, huge admittance on on his own technical, tactical, uh, tactical weaknesses. Um, and th- obviously, there there were scenarios where 2015 Chelsea conceded the goal and, and came back. So it's not like an absolute impossibility. But um, yeah, one of the one of the and and again, you can look at his United side. Certainly, the United side that finished second. Although I think David De Gea sort of dragged them to second, to be honest. Um, and and yeah, it, it, it's it's all about that that first goal, and and once you're a goal ahead, you can force the mistakes out of the opposition. So it, it's I talk about like proactive and reactive a lot. So the idea of Mourinho as being like a a traditionally reactive manager who has had to adapt to proactive ideals, and what he's done is he's attempted to marry the two. So he is proactive when there is an even game state, but. He is true to himself, so as soon as uh, Chelsea or Spurs are a goal or, or maybe two goals up, that is the point that they say, OK, now we can sit back, now we can counter, and that's really our biggest strength is once we have a goal up in, a, in our advantage, it's our game and we can force lesser teams to play with the ball. And I think that's um, potentially the crux of why you have some people who say Mourinho is a defensive manager and some people who say no he's not he's he's just a normal manager because for those opening few minutes when there's no goal in the game he's not especially defensive he's 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 desperate to get that first goal he's also desperate not to make any mistakes but yeah his sides do attack they certainly do attack and that Chelsea side I remember being a really fluent attacking unit and they they played some attractive stuff at times I think that the the so um, certainly Mourinho fans will overplay how attractive it is there's definitely a lot of fluidity with the attacking midfield three that was a major feature of, of the way that they played um, but I think also when people talk about is Mourinho attacking or defensive they say well look at the number of goals that his Real Madrid side scored look at the number of goals Chelsea scored that season look at the number of goals even United scored the season they finished second it's like yeah but most of those goals he's scoring once they're able to play on the counter-attack and you can mm. pick out those counter-attacks and say well this is a very attractive counter-attack and that's absolutely true but he's not someone and, and Real Madrid players sort of have, have uh, mentioned this in the past he's not someone who actively um, actively coaches counter-attacks he's someone who allows very good attacking players into counter-attack scenarios where they improvise and that does result in good football to watch and impressive attacks that result in goals but that's 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 again that's manipulating the game state to to score those goals so he's not going out and forcing those goals against a defensive side which is the biggest skill in football he's he's scoring them on the counter which is not to say that those are like illegitimate and those don't count that's not the point i'm just saying that like that doesn't that there's a importance in how you underline his skills there and if we can sum it up in um, one final sentence or two, do you feel better about Mourinho having done this research? A, a bit better, somewhat better, but not like completely changed my mind sort of thing. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, right, we'll go back to your question. Uh, so Lenny P. Kova says, are players peaking earlier than 20 years ago? On paper, our squad should be peaking and not over the hill. The only slight exception being Toby and Jan, but early 30s for a centre-back isn't too bad. Or do Poch knacker them all. Uh, Bardi, what do you think? Do you think players are peaking earlier than they were 20 years ago? 
I think players are far more... The exposure of players is, happens to them when they're far younger because before we would have to wait for a big, a major tournament or a, um, a European Cup or something like that to really bring the focus of a young player who, who wasn't based in, in England to, to our attention. So I think now we're finding out about these players earlier. For example, Mbappe has been on the, has been on the radar for a long time. Um, so that perhaps ends in our thinking that they're kind of declining because they've been around for so long. But if you look at players, Ronaldo, Messi, Neymar, these are guys, well, those two are in their 30s. Neymar's approaching 30. They're still, good. They're still maintaining that level. In, um, in Italy, as I always do, I like to bring it back to Italy, they think you're a young player until you hit to 25. They reckon before you get that exposure, you've got to you know, earn your, make your bones in the under-21s, do all the tournaments. So they've always been quite to their, to their detriment. They've always held players back a lot longer than they would essentially do here in England. Owen, Rooney are two examples of players who were kind of thrown in to major tournaments at a super young age. Where if you think perhaps the last young player to burst onto, onto the scene for Italy, is I don't know Baggio in 1990 or Balotelli at um, Euro 2012 but he's he'd already won the Champions League and won the league at Man City so I, I think there's a perception that players are burning out faster just because we're aware of them longer at Tottenham I don't know I how we don't know unless you go into the future and, ha- and and have a look I don't think it's down to Pochettino really burning out players I don't think you can hold our manager responsible for that how about you, Nathan? Do you have thoughts on the player peak? Yeah, I uh, I disagree with Bardi. I do think that players <laughs> are uh, are burning out earlier. I think that football is more athletically demanding than it was. I think, um, and they're playing sort of similarly um, over the top number of minutes. But yeah, I think I think players are are maybe starting earlier, but pl- uh, but playing a more physically demanding version of the game and um, and nattering out earlier. And and I've I've mentioned before the the that Pochettino um, is sort of one of the managers who is leading the way on that but I think that that is just the way that football is going and like developmentally um like it's always been about the um the playoff between like um so players continue to develop um mentally throughout their entire playing career and like even beyond as they become coaches etc so they get you know you get smarter with age but you also slow down as you get older so it's always been about finding where the window between the sort of the the athletic peak crossed over with the mental peak and that used to be later on and as the game has become more athletic it has also become more micromanaged so the decision making process is decreased on the players end as they are maybe better coached but maybe just more strongly coached in in the the mental aspects so that that uh you need less of the smartness of older players and you need more of the legs of younger players and so football becomes a younger game so you just said something really interesting there, and that was where my research led me as well, which was um, around it being more important to look at the team age rather than an individual player's age. So essentially you need a combination of older players and younger players in, sure. in the team, which I think makes sense just from a sort of practical perspective. Uh, the research I looked at suggested that in 1992, the average age of players in the Champions League was 429 and now it's closer to 27. So actually, wow. yeah, I know. I was, I was quite surprised that it's the opposite of what you'd wow. imagine. Yeah, yeah. So actually, players perhaps aren't peaking earlier. They're peaking close, uh, a little bit older, closer to 30. Um, but I think it's also, it's positional as well. So the research also said that elite forwards and wingers 
tended to be a lot younger, and it's likely that that's due to the importance of explosiveness and speed. Yeah, yeah. Which, which again, makes total sense. You do, you always assume uh, an exciting winger is going to be like 21, 22, 23. Once they get to Aaron Lennon's age, they have to use different skills. They haven't got that amazing burst of explosive speed anymore, and they have to uh, develop other areas of the game. Uh, goal, goalkeepers obviously tend to play a lot older as well. Yeah, if you if you look at the kind of Ballon d'Or list and players that have been involved, they always players at the later end. I think I think we as a public just get bored of yeah. individuals. Do you know what? I think that's such a good point. I really do. We just we've seen. Um, we've, I mean, obviously there are players who do fall off a cliff, but we get so bored of seeing Iniesta these guys who have been playing for at such a high level that we just take it for granted. Luka Modric, for example, he he peaked um, as he got older. The older he got, the better he got. So I think I think on the whole, players do peak at the right time. I think there's exceptions, of course, who die. Michael Owen, those kind of guys, they die. They've got nothing left in their legs. Players who essentially are reliant on speed. But I think the very best players are able to sustain it over a longer period of time. Because they just have a wider skill set more than just their body. Indeed, and we can look at the improvements in kind of off-field things like, for example, sports science, like dietitian, like strength and conditioning coaches being a part of the uh, first team training coaching unit. These um, these things will help. They'll help sustain players' careers a little bit longer. Um, but Nathan also makes a really valid point that we're putting players through so much football, particularly mm-hmm. in the case Spurs where we've had a very sort of small tight squad under Pochettino and we've flogged our players like you wouldn't believe I mean the number of games that the likes of Alderweireld and Kane and Delhi played over the last few years it's just too many frankly they shouldn't be playing the number of games that they are and so you'd expect them to perhaps have a slightly shortened career <coughs> as a result of that um so I do think Pochettino has something to answer for uh by not kind of having a, a larger squad and rotating a little bit more but at the same time you know he nearly won us the Champions League so in in one sense kind of did the best he could with what he had and, and who can blame him he's not thinking of 10 years down the line interesting question though wasn't it mm-hmm. uh next I am one shocked i'm absolutely shocked. I'm, I'm i'm looking it up now and i'm finding the same findings that you are that that players are getting are getting older i i'm i'm so shocked by that i think it will change i i think that will change over the next few years because we're developing such good young players and we'll find a bit more churn perhaps because players in elite academies will be brought through once the trust's there in young English players which will take some time to develop there'll be a little bit more churn and we'll see more refreshing of squads more regularly but yeah it was quite interesting I I found it quite quite surprising as well. Uh, Next one is from uh, Stu Irving who says with them both now in the Premier League, how do you feel about signing Lacelso instead of Bruno Fernandes? So Nathan, obviously different players, but are you happy that we got the right person? I am, yeah. So this is sort of this is paraphrase. This is born out of a conversation that sort of happened over the course of three or four tweets. Um, because because someone was not the first person to draw a comparison between Bruno Fernandes and Tanguy and Dombele, and I, I don't think that that's that's how it was I think that we chose Lo Celso over Fernandez, or we couldn't land Fernandez and settled for Lo Celso um, but I'm really happy with Lo Celso like I'm I'm really really pleased with his performances how he took a little while to sell in but um he's he's brilliant and like 
Fernandez is now at United, now in the Premier League, and we can see how well he is performing. Um, and he is also really absolutely brilliant. So, like, there wasn't really a wrong answer between these two. I don't think, like, narrowing it down to these two and having these two as options was like a really strong place to be in. Um, but I think, and this is sort of what I said before, so and it, and it's ringing true, is that like Fernandez is more individualistic, is more sort of looking to score the goals himself, is more of a number ten, whereas the Celso is more contributing and build up, um, making the play, controlling the tempo, um, carrying from deep, more able to play central midfields, that sort of thing. And I think that both for our needs, um, as we believe them to be at the time, and also as they have turned out, which is <laughs> really bad, uh, we more needed Lo Celso to sort of knit things together for our um, you know, squad of bumbling idiots than we did need <laughs> Fernandez to just sort of win games for us on his own. I love that, squad of bumbling idiots. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're not obviously there's a lot of talent in the squad we're just like in, in a messy place with the balance and everything yeah yeah i i feel for me lacelso could become my favorite player within a year i absolutely yeah, love watching him play uh he reminds me he's, he's sort of like a mixture of um modric and ericsson yeah sort of somewhere it. between the two of them Obviously, he's not got anything like Ericsson's output yet. Um, hopefully, that will come. But um, he looks such a good player. Bardi, how do, how do you feel on this one? Yeah, I kind of agree with what Nathan said. At the time, we needed more of a central midfielder, uh, which Lo Celso is. We still had Ericsson at the club. So maybe there was a hope that we could squeeze something out of him for the for the rest of the season. But I think Lo Celso was the signing we needed. And of course, it doesn't, doesn't mean that we don't need Fernandez as well. If it was one or the other, it's a very difficult decision to make. But I'm very happy with Lacelso. Would have been ecstatic with the two, but I'm happy. Bruno was a lot of money as well, wasn't he? He wasn't. He wasn't yeah. cheap. They um, yeah. they had to really go big for him. Um, he, he's a set piece specialist as well, and that is always very attractive because I mean, set pieces I think at Spurs have been misused for a number of years. It's a potential to get a goal when you're not dominating a game. Um, we've seen how Liverpool have used that to good effect over the last two seasons, but it's such an important piece of uh, weaponry to have at your disposal. So they've got uh, a free kick gem there in Bruno. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Uh, next one, and I'm so shocked that Nathan put this question in. It's from uh, Gage Reynolds, <laughs> who I spoke to on, on his podcast, which is very enjoyable. He's a very nice... Oh, is he the Swedish Texan. bloke? No. Okay. Oh, sorry. Uh, I'm getting confused. Texan. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, mate. I'm getting them mixed so, up. Uh, you know, I got a lot of podcasts. Fine. Uh, <laughs> Gage... International podcast megastar. <laughs> you said it. You said it. Uh, so Gage says, what is the likelihood of traditional formations dying in the next five to ten years? With fluid and asymmetrical shapes becoming more and more common, could the death of traditional formations be the next major theoretical evolution in the world of tech? But do you like your tactical history what do you what do you feel on this one i'm i'm quite looking forward to the no tactic no formations existing and putting a video camera in like somebody's dad's house and watching <laughs> as the team gets 
read out in alphabetical <laughs> order and just watching people lose their minds. Um, I don't know. It's, it's very it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen. I don't I don't think that like I don't think we're going to lose um, traditional formations. I think I think that it's the staple of football and formations have changed and adapted. But there is there's people moving back towards old four four twos. There's kind of representations of the old WM formation in modern tactics. So I don't think we're ever going to lose them. And yeah, I I, I just don't think that's going to happen. Okay then, Nate. The floor is yours. <laughs> I um I think that formations are already very asymmetrical. I don't think that it's going to get that much more extreme. Um, I think that obviously, like you're going to see more asymmetry in your attacking shape and more symmetry in your defensive shape because if there's asymmetry in your defensive shape, then there are obvious ways to exploit. Um, but essentially, I think that we will continue to think of them in terms of their traditional form. So, like when we like Mourinho sets up with a defensive left back and attacking right back and a wide left winger and an inside right forward or whatever, we just call that a four-two-three-one. And I obviously as the tactics dickhead on Twitter do my sort of wonky formation graphic, but that's still just a four two three one that we call a four two three one. We're not gonna start calling that, you know, an asymmetrical three left dominant, you know, that sort of stuff. It's just we'll just keep calling them the nearest thing, the 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 basic idea and, and start with the idea of the defensive shape and yeah. Does it bother you that that's quite reductive? No. No, because I I believe in like the simplicity of communication, mm. the over accuracy or whatever. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I I I think in some respects it's this is this question sort of is linked to coaching as well. And I mentioned the um I mentioned this earlier that Spurs have a tendency to develop lots of sort of quite samey midfielders, and I'm not saying that that is a problem across the whole country. I don't think it necessarily is. Uh, but we are certainly, as a nation, developing more tactically and technically, particularly technically, rounded players. So even a defender coming through now has had a lot of technical coaching since they were incredibly young because we mm. invested money into the elite academies as part of the elite player performance plan. And therefore, it allows you some flexibility with tactics that perhaps weren't there some time ago. And I think as that continues, it means you can be more flexible and more fluid with what you then do on the pitch in elite matches. And, you know, I think ultimately you're still going to have players whose job it is to put the ball in the in the net at one end and players whose job it is to stop the ball going into your net. But there's definitely more of a blurring in those roles. I mean, we've seen the development of the fullback role over the past 20 years means that if you watch a game from 20 years ago what fullbacks do then is so different to what the majority of fullbacks do now and I think that will continue so probably you'll see centre-backs carrying the ball out more a bit like we've seen with Juan Foyt attempting to do uh, unsuccessfully against Norwich (laughs) where we've ended up conceding but that kind of thing I don't think will be unusual I think you will see players trusted to do more with the ball to uh, create overloads in areas of the pitch we've also seen transitions become more important and Nathan's spoken about counter pressing already but transitions are such an important part of the game now whereas that terminology wasn't even used 20-25 years ago we're all familiar with what it means now so rather than you know one team attacks the ball goes out of play then the other team attacks the ball goes out of play and sometimes one team attacks the ball goes out of play and then they attack again they attack again it's much more fluid than dynamic than that now in, in most games so you've got teams deliberately giving the opposition the ball in order to win it back high up the pitch you've got these kind of different ways of playing which catch on and become fashion 
fashionable and become accepted. And, and once players have played that style for one manager, they feel more comfortable with it and they can go and play that style for another manager and pass that on and pass it on and, and things just evolve from there. So I think um, it's an interesting question that Gage asked, but I think ultimately you know, you'll always have some form of sort of defence and attack within your team. It's just the balance of how that how that operates and, uh, like I said, the blurring of the lines between attacking players and defending players that might get interesting. So Cameron Rogers says, even for players you might generally prefer not to sell, there exists a price at which you would rather have the money than the player. Taking into account Spurs' current situation, what would that number be for Son and how about Delhi? Bardi, we've spoken quite a lot about the potential need to sell one of our big players mm. um, in the next transfer window. What kind of money would it take for you to consider selling Son or Delhi? I think Sun's got to be close to 100 million. Um, I think Delhi on current form is probably around 50, 60, but then he, he should be worth more than that. Um, I think it's about being brave and not being scared to sell our best players. We we sold our best one of our best players at Carl Walker and we replaced him with Trippier and we, we did okay with that. That was, a, that was a brave move to do, reinvest the money elsewhere. Just got to make sure that we're smarter when reinvesting the money. But um, selling your best players doesn't make you a selling club, which is... Uh, a fear a lot of um, a lot of fans have. And how about you, Nathan? If you had to put a figure on it, what what would you be willing to sell Son Kyung Min for? Yeah, similar sort of things. I um I included this question because we talked about or I put up the argument for selling Harry Kane in the previous episode. <laughs> Obviously, you two pushed back, which is fair enough. But I wanted to include this question to sort of <laughs> spin it around on you two and put you on the spot. So I want to hear your <laughs> answer. I mean, it's it, there's two there's sort of two parts to it, isn't there? There's there's getting maximum value for the player and working out whether they've peaked um, and and selling at the right time. And I think there are you could argue a case that we sold Kyle Walker at the right time, like Bardi says. We got forty seven million for him. Um, he probably was briefly worth more than that once we sold him, but mm. I would say he's probably worth less than that now, partly because of his age. Yeah. Uh, so I would argue that was a fairly successful sale uh we failed to sell danny rose at his peak we failed to sell christian erickson at his peak we failed to sell many many players at their peak and it is a it is an issue at spurs but then the other part of it is sort of what the player gives to the club in the intangible elements of uh-huh. of them as a as a player and as a person and both son and delhi have such commercial appeal that it kind of makes them so much more valuable um in other in other ways and i i think 100 million for a player of son's ilk would be about right but because of the commercial element i think he's worth more than that and i think we should demand more someone like son and if a club is willing to pay 150 then fine sell him but unless that unless that offer comes then i'd i'd keep him for a bit longer I think he's the kind of player that will maintain value because of the commercial appeal. And the same for Delhi. Abadi is exactly right that Delhi's well below his peak market price at the moment. If we get Delhi back to how he was playing two years ago, he'll be worth double what he's worth at the moment. So why would you say at that point? It'll be, it'll be a silly decision. Or do you think, yeah. Nath, is, is that Yeah, no, I think that's fair. That I think fair? that's fair. Like, there are still, like, dozens of Korean fans at every single Tottenham game, mm. like, years on. So, and that has got to have some kind of... And they also, like, <laughs> they've all got, like, Sun 7 shirts as well so like that's got to have some kind of um you know financial um advantage so i, I think that's a, a very fair point in, in terms of what that does for the club um i remember when we bought him for 22 million a lot of fans were saying oh we're just buying him for the market appeal but like what a player um he is he has been for us and yeah Delhi. so you mentioned ericsson you said that we didn't sell him at his peak i disagree i think we have sold him at his peak it's just that he's <laughs> been really off form 
at his mm. peak. And so um, the, the timing is right, but not in terms of how that played out sort of on the pitch. And I think that like Delhi's still very young, but it's a sort of a similar situation as, as you alluded to. You wouldn't sell him now because he's not perceived as good as he definitely is. Yeah. So we should wait until he's playing better before looking to cash in on him, basically. And unlike what we did with Ericsson, we need to make sure these players are tied into lengthier contracts. Yes. Because that did not help with Ericsson at all. Uh, final question is from Brian Schaefner. He says, can you spend a little time assessing, assessing Sessegnon? <laughs> I had to have a run up at that one. Sessegnon. Uh, Sessegnon, nice. Uh, particularly with an eye to thinking about whether you see him as a starting left back down the road and how soon that could realistically happen. And he, he suggests perhaps next season. Um, Bardi, what have you made of Sessegnon so far? And how would you kind of assess whether you, he could be a starting left back in the future? I don't think we've seen enough of him and I don't think he's played enough either for his own development. He looks like a player bereft of confidence. Um, in the in the final game against Leipzig, there was moments where he, res- he collected the ball. I think it was perhaps in the build-up to maybe their first or second goal. He collected the ball in, in a dangerous area for Spurs, but lost all confidence on it and ended up just kind of floating a, a non-ball into, into their area, which they counted on us. And I think there was a moment in the second half as well where he just seems to have lacked all... He seems to have lost that sense of ability in himself to hold the ball, do something, um, do something with it. And in the end, he's always looking for the easy out option, which, which costs us, especially when our, our midfield isn't great at winning the ball back. I think I think he needs time. I think he needs a, a left back who um, he can learn from. We all hoped, well, I hoped anyway, that Danny Rose could be that individual. It hasn't worked out. Ben Davies is continually struggling with fitness I think he needs a good solid season injury free with a um, with almost like a mentor in front of him to really um, hit that level I don't think I don't think he's in any position right now to be our starting left back going into um, next season do you think that's fair Nathan yeah I I I can understand all of that like it's um, like I've been really really high on Sessegnon and it's not like I'm not anymore it's just that it's been a really disappointing season for him developmentally like obviously he he came in to play under Pochettino, under a, a player who who maybe is over-regarded for his ability to nurture young players, but that's beside the point, um, uh, and sort of develop that way and, and maybe start off getting some minutes on the wing and then move back uh, to a left-back position. And now we're playing under Mourinho, where we play almost all games with a defensive left-back. And are there enough minutes for him? Can he pick up some minutes on the wing and all that kind of stuff? So it's been been really frustrating, and his performances obviously haven't been great as as a result, as you would expect. Um, so I, I'm slightly worried about about him and his development and his time at this club because he is a, a really special footballer. I think if he can be a rounded left back, um, then then that's a hell of a player that we potentially have there. Um, it's interesting that he picked himself to play left back on his FIFA team. We did a little stream. They stole my idea, obviously. Um, Sessegnon mm. played against Antonio uh, on Friday and he, and he played himself at left back. So he obviously certainly <laughs> is open to the idea of seeing himself as a left back um but yeah it's, it's it's been frustrating with him basically this season but he's he's good he's he's really really good yeah he's really really good i, I think people have got setting on a bit wrong they kind of don't understand what he is because perhaps they haven't seen that much of him uh he's not a player that gets the ball at his feet and takes his man on time after time a bit like danny rose and whips crosses in that's not him at all i think so, he can be i think he can be more that way i i 
not from what I've seen personally. Like I, I don't, I don't doubt that he can do bits of that, but that's not his. For me, they, those aren't his key strengths. So I think he's the kind of player who's very good at arriving. Like he's, he's got, sure. a, he's not fast, but he's got a good stride. He's got a really good stride. He's tall, and so he covers ground pretty quickly without having that kind of burst of acceleration. So he's very sure. good at arriving in the right area. He's incredibly intelligent in the final third. So he's very a bit like Delhi. He's got that kind of ability to find space and time a run, and he's also in incredible final third passer from the left like yes for a fullback he has excellent pass selection and i think he's the kind of player that we'll see lots of assists from over this i see him way more as like a christian zieger figure than a danny rose figure if that makes sense okay uh, someone who will look for passes, arrive at the right time, but not like beat players for fun with the ball at his feet. That's for me. That's not him. Um, and uh, like, I think if you get that idea out of your head, it becomes easier to just accept him for what he is. Um, having said that, I fully agree with what Bardi said that he just looks so lost out there at the moment, mm. and it's it's really sad to see. And I've seen it with Juan Foyth, who I think is a fantastic player and had a huge sort of loss of confidence. Obviously, we saw it with Kyle Walker Peters as well i know him to be a superb player who just totally lost his confidence and i want these young players to be given time to build their confidence back up because i mean it's much like the conversation we were just having about delhi you you'd end up losing them when they're nowhere near their peak value so why not commit a little bit of time into building their confidence back up and hope that we get an elite level player i think sessignon truly could be an elite level left back he's He's certainly one for the future, and I, I hope that Spurs stick with him and give him an opportunity. I, I quite like Bardi's idea, though, of kind of a classy, more mature left-back who's got an understanding, good understanding of how to defend, be it taking on a kind of mentorship role. That that seems quite attractive. I'm not sure if Ben Davis is that man. Um, I mean, Ben Davis is a player who has been number two all his life, but he's he's never let that affect him. He's tried to adapt his game. He's always done what his managers have asked. He, he filled in really well for um for Danny Rose for long periods under Pochettino some sometimes when we we're playing some of our best football he's he's adapted and played in a back three for Wales I think his attitude is great he doesn't cause any problems he gets on with the game and he he may lack perhaps technically and ability wise but I think he, I think he's a really good role model for someone just to get your head down and focus on your game and and improve, make those marginal gains in areas where you're where you are good. I think Davies lacks it in certain places, but if he can get Sessignon to really maximise his skills, then I think he could be a great mentor for Sessignon. I mean, you've sold it. You've sold it really well. <laughs> and he has. You're right. He has got like the right personality for that role. I just not, I'm just not sure he's good enough. Mm. I know that sounds really horrible because, like you said, he has always been fully committed to Spurs and has never once moaned when he's been helped the team. And I always admire players like that. He's a proper kind of team man, but I I just think he's that good. And I feel so bad saying it, but I just don't think he's up to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, ha- having Davis and Cessny on at left back is potentially not a problem. I would say, um, Nathan, you've got a little message before we before we sign off. <laughs> okay, you want me? To, okay, so uh, just that like uh don't worry about like the lack of football at the moment on our, on our end we, we've got lots of plans for things that we're going to do some of which is again our ideas have been stolen before they've even come to fruition for us by other podcasts i guess that kind of makes it obvious um yeah but we've, we've got some we've got several things planned to to sort of cover the next few weeks in terms of content possibly uh looking at sort of um some live things maybe um but you know 
stay tuned thanks for listening remain indoors and try not to think about the event yeah and nathan's had some really good ideas about sort of like i said sort of community event bringing together the extra inch community because we appreciate that these are difficult times and people need distraction in the form of three two idiots and one genius talking about uh their beloved Tottenham hotspur so if we can kind of get like-minded people together to be distracted from the horrors of the modern world briefly then we will try and make that happen and uh yeah keep keep in touch via our twitter feed uh, for, for news on that you've been listening to the extra inch thanks to nathan a clark for production thanks to barney for being italian thanks to adam gardner for the artwork thanks to david lindner for our intro music you can find him on twitter at davy shambles and his soundcloud d lindner do check him out he's great Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Extra Inch. Email us via podcast at theextrainch.co.uk and subscribe via your usual podcast platforms. And if you do enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review. That would really